Hello, I'm Bryn Lucas and welcome to another episode of It's All About Me. And my special guest this week is a runner-up of MasterChef. He's also a Bristolian. So if you like both of those things, you're going to love this one. My guest is Dean Edwards. Dean Edwards, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. You're welcome. So I've described you as a runner-up of MasterChef and a Bristolian. (laughs) What do you describe yourself as? I guess the word that springs to mind is lucky. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be able to do something that I absolutely love. But if you turn the clock back 15 or 16 years... My life was completely different. So um, that's where the lucky part comes into it. I I truly believe that I'm really, really fortunate to be doing the things today because not many people can actually say they love their work. Hmm. Um, But but I can truly say that. And I do still pinch myself every day to kind of see how much my life has changed over the past 15 years. And um, in a, a more sort of natural sense, I'm a chef, cook, author, I do all sorts, really. Jack of all trades, master of none. Jack of all trades. A bit of a footballer as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, that's, that should have been my first calling, but um, didn't quite make the grade. If we can wind the clock back to the very beginning of time for Dean, <laughs> where did it all start? Well, in terms of my passion for food and cooking, uh, I was really, really fortunate to... I've been born into a family that, that loved food, simple as that. Uh, it wasn't a case of we were exposed to expensive meals or, you know, restaurants. I think I, I went to a restaurant for the first time when I was 13 years old, you know. So it wasn't the fact that I was exposed to different things. It was, as a family, we cooked. And my nan was from Cape Town in South Africa, and she, she brought across the water to us incredible Malay, South African food. And that was it for me. You know, it it wasn't about cooking. It was about loving to eat good food. So for me, I was very fortunate to have been brought up in a family that there was always a home cooked meal on the table. And that was really what started my passion for cooking and, and eventually my journey into the world of food. So tell me a bit about your parents. My dad was an electrician by trade and my mum had many different jobs whilst we were growing up. You know, we, we, we grew up on a council estate in Bristol, so it was tough times for, for my parents. And, you know, they, they worked whatever jobs they could to actually put food on the table. So that's why I'm so appreciative of the fact that we were able to eat the fantastic meals that we could growing up. So it's kind of modest background then? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's kind of what keeps me very humble, hmm. keeps, me, keeps me motivated and uh, most of all, it keeps me appreciative of the start that I was I was given in life because you know nothing came easy, and I know both of my parents worked very very hard to get me the opportunities, and not only that, but for for the whole of my family, the opportunities for us to actually move on through life and actually thrive. So your mum did quite a, a wide variety of jobs. Did you spend a lot of time with your folks when you were a kid? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we, we, we come from a very loving family. Um, unfortunately for, for me, my, my parents divorced when I was 10. So, you know, it was, 
a bit strange back then because you know I, I didn't know anyone else that was going through those things or had gone through through that I, I kind of you know people it happens all the time now but back then it was something a little bit different so our way of life was a little bit different to a lot of my friends and it, we did share time between the different households um but it was it was great it was different experiences between between both and you know it, it was just a different way of life but actually it didn't affect us my mum and dad are still great friends to this day and it's because of those sort of you know the, those experiences and teachings that it kind of makes you the person that I am today yeah yeah so how many um how many siblings do you have or are you an only one my my family are a little bit kind of disjointed in a way i've got a brother who's a year and a half younger than me i've got a sister who's 10 years younger my parents went their separate ways and remarried after that. So I've got twin sisters on my mum's side who are 20 years younger. And I've got a sister on my dad's side who's 23 years younger than me. So basically, I'm old enough to be their dad, which is a little bit strange. <laughs> Christmas must be really expensive. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's not the cheapest time of the year, to be honest. There's always someone's birthday, which is really annoying. Yeah, yeah <laughs> Considering absolutely. I'm a bit tight. <laughs> but the oldest of quite a, a lot of people then do you ever find that the pressure of being the older one no not really um because of the dynamics of the family actually once we sort of flew the nest so to speak we we took care of ourselves so there wasn't any pressure on you know looking after anyone else you know both myself my brother we moved out when we were 18 years old you know never to come back so to speak because mm. there were other children that were you know that that needed looking after so we kind of just got on with it and don't don't get me wrong we've had help and advice from our parents but um I, I never felt any pressure being the older one funny enough it, it always seems like my brother's the older one out of us two not only because he looks older but you know he's always looked after me as well which is a bit strange well it's because you've got your boyish good looks still right well you know either that or he had an uphill paper round <laughs> were you very close then you and your you and your older, yeah. uh, you and your older brother you and your younger brother <laughs> yeah absolutely I think um most siblings tend to be that way when there's that close of an age gap you know there was 15 months between us both and yeah it, it, we were very very close and actually I'm, I'm close with all my family mm. to be honest considering I've, I've never lived with three of my sisters uh, you know, it's it's cool to see how we all get on, and you know the dynamic of our family is is wicked. Really, it's we're we're very very lucky. So you know, we, we're absolutely not not the most functional families, quite dysfunctional really. But when it comes down to it, I, I feel very lucky that we all get on as we do. You know, it's uh, Christmas time is always a wicked wicked affair, um, whereas all of the families come together. You know, my my mum. My dad, their their partners, all the kids. It's it's wicked. Everyone gets together and we celebrate it as a family. And that to me is just I feel very lucky. Yeah, yeah. So do you have lots of nephews and nieces dotted around as well then? Yeah, exactly, which makes Christmas even more expensive. I'm interested to know what it was like for you uh, as a kid. You obviously had um, a younger brother then who, similar age to you, not a lot between you. So when things went a bit, say, pear-shaped with the family and they split up, you had a quite close support straight away. Yeah, obviously, 
both myself and, and my brother, I, I guess, were were going through a similar thing. But it was I don't think we were ever allowed for it to affect us, to be totally honest with you, Bryn. It was there was there, there was never any excuses that we were able to say misbehave because we were going through something like that. It, mm. it, it was never allowed, really. And, and, and actually, I think we had a happier childhood growing up because of that fact. It sounds really strange, you know, but it'd be very easy to make excuses when something like that happens in life. But, you know, our parents were strong and and didn't allow that to affect us growing up. You know, my, my, my parents were both very, very young when they had me. My mum was 17. My dad was 18. You know, so they had a lot of growing up to do themselves. So it was a strange dynamic. But also at the same time, I got nothing to to moan about you know it's we, we we grew up in two loving houses rather than being under the same roof so there are a lot of people whose parents stay together and you know life isn't a happy place at home so you know you have to make the most of your experiences you have to learn from them and, and I think that's what we were taught from an early age both from our parents but also you know we had very loving grandparents as well and that really that really helped mm. growing up it's interesting, isn't it? Normally, um, you come to these conclusions, I think, as you get older, you know, I'm in a similar boat to you. My parents split up when I was when I was just a very young child, you know, one, two years old, something like yeah. that. So I don't remember them ever being together. And that's a weird one, because that's taken me time to get, you know, to get to grips with, come to terms with the fact that I don't have any of those, those sort of joined up memories. And then friends of mine, when I was at school, their parents started to split up when they were sort of 12, 13, 14 years old, which is a tough time for a kid. Three parents yeah. to split up. But it's weird that, you know, it's only looking back and when I got to 30 odd years old, looking back that I actually understood what they were going through and why they split up. And it was, you know, it was the right thing for them. But it seems like it's unusual that you were able to come to that conclusion at the time, as opposed to looking back at it. You can go one way or the other, Bryn. Mm. And I think most of my life I've been a positive person. You know, you always try to look for the goods in, in any situations. And, and funnily enough, my sister, who was 10 years younger than me, she would have gone through the same experience as you, uh, in the same way as Indy's gone through it with myself and 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 her mum loose and because these things happen in life unfortunately you do find that you have to learn from previous experiences mm. and not let it affect the situation and you know again I, I will never have Indy using that as an excuse to feel sorry for herself because there's nothing to feel sorry for yeah, I think, you know, things happen for a reason in life and you, you only get one life, Bryn. So if you, if you spend time wallowing in, in the what ifs and you're never, ever going to move forward. So um, the lessons that I guess I learned as a kid and, and, and growing up have to be put into practice and hopefully Indy will learn from those as well. You know, life is different. It's not the same as, you know, the traditional uh, relationships and family surroundings that she may see her friends having in in terms of the dynamics within our little scenario i think she's quite lucky 
it's amazing how many times nowadays how many families are together now it's almost like a, a divorced or split up parents is the norm and actually anybody who's got parents who live together i used to feel like oh you yeah. poor things i've got two christmases <laughs> <laughs> see it's all about taking the positive friend it is isn't it you try anyway Let's go back to you being at school. So what were you like as a, as a kid? What were you like as a pupil or a student? Not the most intelligent, I wouldn't have said. Um, I actually really loved school. I'm not sure school loved me at the same point. I enjoyed learning. I also loved the, you know, the sport side of things and, and everything like that. You know, I've always been quite competitive in terms of my, my nature. Hmm. But um, yeah, school was, school was good. Like I, I love school dinners. But, was it um, soggy yeah. semolina? You loved a bit of semolina, did you? Do you know what? Chocolate semolina Ooh. was one of my favourites. It was, it was like a really kind of weird custody scenario. Um, cheese scotch eggs were always my favourite. That was absolutely banging. So it was next level <laughs> to me, mate. Next level, it that one. The is. cheese scotch egg. Whoa. Yes, yeah. That's, that's, I think I'm going to have to put that in the next book. What about when you left school then? Did you continue your education or did you move on to something entirely different? Education didn't end there for me. Um, I actually found during my time at school that I had a huge passion for, for art and design. So once I, I left school, I ended up going to college to study art and design, which uh, actually led me to do a degree in photography. You know, I... I absolutely loved it. And funnily enough, it's come back full circle. Uh, you know, once, once I finished my degree, which kind of takes me on to the next stage of my life, I moved back to Bristol. And like most students, I was absolutely skint. And my dad said to me, you know, Dean, I'll, I'll get you a job with my friend's company just to get a little bit of money up together before you go and chase your dream of being a photographer up in London or whatever you, you want to do. And <laughs> basically, look, cut a long story short, I, I ended up, driving a digger for seven years um so you know it wasn't the way that you know, I'd, I'd sort of planned my life to go but funnily enough come back full circle now i actually use those skills that i learned at uni as a photographer you know within all of my food stuff now so actually it's it, it's quite cool and it wasn't an education wasted so to speak yeah yeah and spending time in a digger did you enjoy the digger life the digger time yeah, I did, to be fair. <laughs> it's, it, it, it was hard work. It was really hard work, you know, especially during the winter times. And we were working in and around the live electric. So, you know, it wasn't the, uh, the, the safest job in the world. But I think with, any, with anything I've done in my, in my life, I quite like precision, hmm. you know. So it's, it was something that needed lots of attention. It needed skill. Um, it's a, it was a big chapter in my life and I wouldn't have done it for so many years if I didn't sort of deep down enjoy it. So, um, yeah, no, it, it was cool. And, uh, funnily enough, I'm doing a bit of building work on, on the house at the moment. So I, I did bring those, those skills out of retirement the other day, just have a little, a little spin on the digger. But, uh, yeah, no, I quite enjoyed it to be fair. You hired yourself a mini digger, did you? Well, no, it was on site. They were doing, the professionals were doing the work. I thought, oh, come on, let me, let me have a little, a little look on there, see if I've still got it. And uh, yeah, you know, it's still there, Bryn. The skills are still there. Of course. You just put it in your pocket for a while, right? <laughs> That's right. It's like riding a bike. <laughs> <laughs> I 
talk to you a little bit about vitiligo because this is something that you've been quite vocal about in the last, I suppose, what, year, two years, maybe, maybe a bit longer. What is vitiligo? Uh, okay, so the easiest way to explain it, it's, a, it's an autoimmune deficiency where the person's body uh, attacks itself almost and it basically kills all the, the melanin which produces pigment in the skin. So um, it's something that I've lived with all my life, to be totally honest with you. It's, uh, I can't remember not having it. But the reason I've become more vocal about it in the last couple of years is, um, you know, it, it's something I needed to speak out on. Mm. Because growing up, it, was, it wasn't something that I even knew. I didn't know anyone else that had it. You know, it was something I can remember being taken to the doctors when I was a, a child and then basically saying, oh, there's nothing you can do about it. So just, just live with it. And, and that was it. You know, the doctor's door closed and the support was over. So it was something that I had to learn to deal with myself. Can you imagine being at school? Anything that makes you different will kind of make you a target, so to speak. So it's, it's so funny. It's like since being on social media for all the, the, the bad that social media does, you know, there's a lot of absolute noises on social media, mm. but there are also great communities as well. And I find on social media, especially on profile like Instagram, there was a huge community of fellow, I see, I don't, I don't like the, the word vitiligo sufferer, you know, because I don't think I'm, you know, I'm not suffering with it. Mm. I, I, you know, I like to think I'm thriving with it. But there are a lot of other people who have vitiligo. And, and actually, it was amazing to see this community come together and, you know, everyone's kind of supporting each other and, and, and kind of showing that it's not something to be negative about. So, I decided to use my platform to raise the awareness that I wish I would have had whilst I was growing up. So I don't think I'm doing anything necessarily special, but if, if speaking about the condition helps just one or two people to accept the things that make them different, then that makes me very happy. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose for you, because of uh, your cooking your chef career really where you have uh, you're on tv so you, people can see you all the time it was becoming hard to cover up i read that you used to get used to put makeup on your hands to try to yeah to try to disguise it um, because of all the close-ups you're having yeah so that that was that was really it i think it's not something that i've ever let hold me back in life but definitely over the last i would say 10 years it's it's spread quite rapidly you know so much so you know, every year when, when I get a base tan, even though I'm very careful in the sun, you know, I see huge new patches of vitiligo, you know, and it's, so it's something that is, is almost fast tracking itself for me. So it was getting harder and harder to cover up. But at the same time, the reason I did used to cover it up whilst I was cooking on TV was literally so I didn't have to deal with the questions after, you know, because there was, I do remember one occasion where I, I forgot my, my cover-up makeup and, uh, you know, the camera's zooming into your hands whilst you're chopping or whatever it might be. And, you know, the amount of messages I got on social media after, and it was, oh, you know, the chef's washed his fake tan off and, you know, oh, he must have washed his hands in bleach. You know, it was just really stupid comments that people, you know, flippantly come out with and obviously have had, no prior thought into 
what they were saying. And, you know, for every plus that social media has, that's a huge negative. And I decided to address it. I think people are just kind of a bit naive when it comes to, they think they can say anything on social media. And, you know, it didn't personally affect me. It doesn't bother my mindset, but it's all relative. You know, that, that same comment to someone else who is in a different state of mind could be deeply damaging. Mm. Yeah. Do you think that as much as social media is a bit of a pain, it's a bit negative because everyone only really ever shows the best side of their life. And it is easy to think that everyone's got a great life. And with all the filters that there are now, I mean, it's just unbelievable people don't look like themselves anymore they put no. so many filters on they look like i don't know everyone's a an amazing catwalk model or something and actually yeah. we're not that oh, no, apart from you obviously you're just an attractive <laughs> human being but you know but it's so easy to use social media for um to pre- to present yourselves in, in a particular way do you think now that because there is now a platform a very visual platform in things like instagram that actually people are coming on board now and are more aware, more conscious of what it is that you have and what you are confronted with when it comes to the keyboard warriors. Absolutely. I think, you know, the fact that we can access this incredible platform of imagery Mm. just shows how diverse we all are, you know, and, um, you know, the one thing I truly say about Vitiligo, actually it could be any condition, you know, that, forms a, a visible difference you know it makes us unique and in a world where it seems everyone's trying to look the same <laughs> yeah I, actually i've grown to embrace the fact that, that there is you know I, I do have a condition which makes me completely unique and uh, you know for for a lot of people it, it is a journey to get to to that point but i do think you know there is a positive when it comes to social media yeah. that there is now a platform for people embracing these things. And, um, you know, my, my whole journey actually with the Vitiligo thing kind of really started with, with my daughter. We, we were actually up in London and we were walking around the shops as, as you do. And there was a, you know, a beautiful little girl in, I think it was in, you know, Gap Kids and she had Vitiligo. And Indy said to me, he said, oh, dad, that's, is that what you've got? And I said, yeah. I said, look how amazing she is. And then he said to me, well, why do you cover yours up? So that for me at that point was like, ah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was, I was sending mixed messages. So uh, that was really the catalyst for me in terms of completely changing my mindset and embracing it. Mm. And sometimes it is something as is innocent as a comment from a child. You know, it's, uh, there, there's no filter there, is there? But they do ask straightforward questions it led me to the point where, okay, yeah, I do have to change my mindset. So that, that really was, was the point for me where I, I really decided to change my outlook on it. And I tried to start to try and inspire other people to do the same. Yeah. And I was thinking, you said at the beginning that you're very positive and I suppose that you've never really seen it as something to hold you back. But the fact that you were, were, were covering it up because you wanted to avoid the questions, it must be quite yeah. freeing to not have to do that anymore. Yeah, absolutely, Brendan. And if I'm totally honest, I'm I'm, I'm not all the way there. Hmm. You know, I I do still cover up. If I, you know, I'm, if I'm filming, I I don't I don't cover up my hands anymore. But you know, I do stick on a bit of makeup on my face every now and again. You know, if if I'm doing something like that, you know, and it's it is what it is. But um, I did. I was very very fortunate enough uh, a couple of years ago to 
of taking part in a photography series by an incredible photographer called Brock Elbank, who over the years has documented visible differences. So whether that's a series on vitiligo, a series on scars, birthmarks, freckles, moles, burns, you know, his, his work is absolutely incredible. And uh, when I found out he was doing a series on vitiligo and I saw the first few, few shots, I'm like, okay, I need to be, I need to be involved with this. Mm. But it did lead me to actually reveal completely my condition you know so over the years I say sometimes it's easy enough to put a little bit of makeup on the hands or whatever but you know most of my vitiligo is hidden underneath my beard so you know the bottom half of my face is is pretty much completely white but it, you know I can hide it hmm. so it led me to the point where Brock said to me yeah I want you involved in the shoot but there will be no makeup and you'll have to be clean shaven so I'm like, ah, okay, right, okay. But I made the decision to do that. And that for even my family, um, that was the first time that they saw the full extent of my vitiligo. And, and actually, it was very freeing. Yeah. I, yeah, actually felt, I felt like a weight was lifted off my shoulders, to be totally honest. And, you know, it's, 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 it are these steps that you take, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. But every single one that you do take is a positive one. So, you know, and that was a huge moment for me. And I feel very honored to have taken part in, in the series because it helped me so much. I also managed to convince my dad, who only two weeks before Indy was born, was in, uh, in a life-changing accident, which, in total honesty, is a miracle he's actually still alive. He was electrocuted with 11,000 volts. Wow which, you know, if it wasn't for his watch touching a, a bit of metal, he, he would have died instantly. But uh, he was left with serious burns. And, you know, once he got over the initial accident, he's now living with the fact he looks completely different to how he did before. And I, when I heard Brock was doing a series on scars, I said to my dad, listen, you, 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 have, to, you have to do this because it, it, it really changed my outlook on my condition and i knew it would do the same for him and um i think we're the first father's son <laughs> to have taken part in in some of brock's photography series and i was so proud of my dad for for doing that and i think it was it was life-changing for him yeah. in terms of doing it just opening up his mind yeah. to that as well you know so I, it was a really cool moment Sounds like you're pretty close to your dad, but you didn't, do you think having a totally different experience, but yet a shared experience that your appearance is changing or has changed, do you think that helped did that bring you even closer, make you even tighter? Um, it was obviously, you know, uh, going through a situation like that in, in any family's dynamic is, is going to be tough. You know, my, my, my dad's always been a, a big part of my life. And, you know, at the time, as I said, it, it happened 10 days before Indy was born, who was his first grandchild. So, but obviously you kind of rely on your parents for support when you go through something like that. But, you know, my dad wasn't there to help because he was, well, you know, he was in hospital for the first sort of six months. So 
we didn't have that support network around us. And, you know, it's been a huge journey for my dad in terms of coming to terms with what he's gone through. And, and not only my dad, you know, his, his wife and, uh, you know, my sister Lauren, who still lives at home with them as well. You know, it's, mm. it was a huge, huge life-changing experience. But, you know, we've, we've, we've always been close. I don't think necessarily the accident brought us closer, so to speak. Well, I think we were very appreciative of the fact that he's still here by all you know by all rights he shouldn't be but it, it actually brought the whole family closer together let's talk about your chef life your cooking life then you got on to master chef in 2006 yes and it all then changed didn't it (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Life-changing for me. We actually filmed in 2005. And I mean, I remember watching MasterChef as a kid on a Sunday afternoon around my nans, you know, with the old Lloyd Grossman. And it always seemed very elitist. You know, it was just a very, very different program to the, the one that it is today. So when MasterChef Goes Large, so to speak, was relaunched back in 2005, I watched the series and I was like, oh, yes. You know, it seemed accessible. So, you know, I just thought nothing to lose. I, I, I didn't truly believe that it was going to change anything because, you know, there was no track record really for anything like that happening. Actually, I think looking back now, it probably was the first reality show, you know, where you follow the journey of someone and you kind of buy into their personalities and their skills and their talent. And, but I didn't really realise how much it was going to change my life it, it was an incredible experience I won't lie to you Bryn I wouldn't w- readily want to do it again it, it it was a hugely hugely tough experience where you're just consumed but it was amazing for me and I'm I'm still the biggest MasterChef fan I bloody love the show you know well, and, you've been and, back but, on it as well haven't you yeah I've been very fortunate over the last sort of seven eight years to have been invited back to do the guest judging on the show, which is amazing because you get to go back. There's no pressure. You just get to eat some good food. Well, most of the time <laughs> you, get, you get to eat some good food. There's, there's the odd occasion where it's not, uh, it's not great. Yeah. I remember I've done when I've worked, I say I've worked with you inverted commas. I'm doing inverted commas, which you can't see. I, I'm on, <laughs> I share, I shared a space with you on occasion and you've cooked and, uh, and I've watched you and there's, I've had occasions with different chefs, not, not you, but, um, where they've, been preparing a fish dish maybe or a chicken dish or something like that and at the end of the cookery demonstration no i have to eat a bit that's the way it is as the presenter you have to eat a bit of the food and i remember there was one chef and they cooked this chicken dish and they uh they lent over to me as i was about to eat it they lent over and they said don't eat the chicken oh, <laughs> and, <gosh. laughs> and i had to take a little forkful of the not yeah. chickeny bit and just go mm, it was absolutely lovely and it's because they hadn't had enough time to fully cook the chicken so it's a bit <laughs> raw still but from the yeah. audience point of view it looked perfect so uh, you know what you're looking for in these sorts of shows and then normally i think on MasterChef it's probably okay but are there some horror stories of stuff you've had to eat then um undercooking food is is something that happens regularly I would suggest, you know, it just, listen, the MasterChef kitchen is a completely different entity. And the things that you cook at home in the the comfort of your own kitchen, you could easily do within the time. But when you're actually in the MasterChef kitchen with the cameras, unfamiliar kitchen, 
unfamiliar equipment. John and Greg chatting to you every two minutes, you know, eating into your time. It's tough. Mm. So actually, that's one thing I've always said, you know, I had the opportunity to go back in and be a guest judge. Um, and I've always said, I will not use that as an opportunity to be negative. And I've been there and I know how easy it is for mistakes to happen within the kitchen. And, you know, that, that you always have to find the positives in what's happening. And, and I guarantee you, 99% of the time, the mistakes that end up on the plate in MasterChef wouldn't happen in the kitchen at home. Yeah, yeah. You didn't quite win it, but you got, you got to the final. You got all the way to the very, very end. And from your appearances and your, and it is success on MasterChef, you managed to get on other TV shows as well. This Morning and Lorraine Kelly, you've been the, the resident chef on both of those shows. Funnily enough, the TV side of things wasn't something that I, I ever wanted to do. I didn't have any plans when I first entered it. It was just like, oh, you know, I like cooking. Let's give this a go. You don't realize that it might kind of take your life in a slightly different uh, direction. But TV absolutely wasn't something that I wanted to do. And uh, I remember turning down lots and lots of things after. And I had the opportunity to do a TV show called Take on the Takeaway, which was good fun. It was very cheesy. I was riding a little moped around. Uh, getting ingredients for the chefs that were cooking. So I wasn't even doing any cooking myself. But the reason I wanted to do this, because it gave me the opportunity to work with some of my heroes. So the likes of Ken Holm, Angela Hartnett, Gary Rhodes, Jean-Christophe Novelli. I was like, oh, God, you know, I have to do this. And that's kind of what set me off on 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 the television path and yeah I was very lucky to have been taken on it this morning and again you know things happen in life that that, that do change the dynamics of your life and I was very fortunate to have been at ITV for 10 years cooking on a regular basis for not only the likes of Phil and Holly and Lorraine but some of my all-time heroes you know mm. David Jason you know old Del Boy it was just things like that you know I was like you can't make it up sometimes. You cannot make it up. So I feel very fortunate, actually, to, to have had that element of my life. And having that fame and having that celebrity that, that comes with any TV appearance, really, you can't be on TV nowadays and not have an element of celebrity. Um, this enabled you then to have the platform to write and publish books, cookbooks. I mean, if someone would have told me all those years ago before I entered MasterChef that I would do one book, let alone four, I would have called him a barefaced liar. <laughs> but uh, to have had the opportunity to do that, I always remember walking into the supermarket, you know, when my first book came out, um, which actually was a, a little bit of a nightmare. Uh, I was so proud of the book. And uh, it, was, it was called Minspiration. I was even proud of the title. And I remember talking to you about Minspiration yeah. quite a number yeah. of times, yeah. Yeah, if you ever wanted to be inspired by mints, that was the book for you. But, <laughs> you know, in, in true Dean Edwards fashion, uh, the, the day of publication was the day that the horse meat scandal broke. So <laughs> you couldn't make it up. So um, sales of mints dropped through the, through the floor. Um, a lot of the supermarkets pulled out of stocking the book literally on day of publication due to this. Um, so it wasn't, you know, necessarily the, uh, the welcome to the publishing world I was hoping for, but these things happen in life. And uh, yeah, it's just, 
I'm very fortunate to have had the opportunity to write three more books off the back of that. And I'm really, really buzzing. Um, actually, Bryn, you'll probably get a little bit of a scoop here. Uh, I'm just about to announce that my fourth book, Cook Slow, Light and Healthy, comes out on September the 6th of this year. Wow. Okay. September 6th, 2020. If anybody's listening in the future. That is a... <laughs> wow. That's very cool. How do you describe your food? How do you describe what you put on a plate? I would suggest it's achievable family food. I don't try and do anything outside of my box. This is the food that I love to eat. It's the food that I love to cook. And actually, it's the food that I like to inspire people to cook. So even if you aren't the most confident of cooks, if your ability when it comes to cooking isn't, you know, of Jamie Oliver standard, it doesn't matter. I use ingredients that are familiar to people. I don't use any dodgy bits of equipment that cost a fortune. You know, I, I like to make my recipes accessible. So if people see something, I've cooked on you know my Instagram or my YouTube channel or anything like that you know I truly believe that everyone that actually would attempt it would have some success so um, that's the sort of food that I I really find is, is is where my passion lies and I don't think I'll ever venture too far from that formula uh, because I it's like anything in life I don't think you can really put your whole heart into something you're not passionate about. So uh, I will always stick to where I feel comfortable. I will stick to the food that I love to cook and I love to eat. And so far, that's kind of kept me on the right tracks. You're really into your sport and uh, a bit of a football fan as well, aren't you? What do you do outside of the kitchen then? Um, well, I think I broached on it earlier on, actually, Brian. I'm just Mr. Competitive. I love competition. So sport has always been a huge part of my life. Uh, when I was growing up, it was uh, football. But I've always been a huge fan of the fight sports, you know, martial arts, boxing. Um, and over the years, I've had a go at pretty much everything. You know, I, I just love it. I love sport and I love the competition that comes with it. Uh, but yeah, over the, the last sort of few years, I've been very, very fortunate to have been involved in a charity called Celebrity which hold, I would suggest, maybe 10 celebrity football matches a year, all held at league grounds. You know, as a football fan, to have played at premiership stadiums, championship stadiums, league one, league two, non-league, you know, I've played stadiums at every level of the football pyramid. And for me, just walking out onto these sort of hallowed pitches and thinking about the players that I've lit up those stadiums before I feel very lucky and yeah it's getting harder Bryn because you know the the years are rolling on now so whereas I used to be able to play a couple of games in a couple of days now a game takes me about a week to get over and I'm walking like Robocop for a while but until my body tells me I cannot do it anymore I will continue to still try and do it yeah I, I, I love it I love I love sport you know and I think it, the minute you let yourself drop away from an active lifestyle is the day that I think your quality of life starts falling off. Mm. So, you know, I'll, I'll keep it up as long as I can. I do it because I, I absolutely love it and I, I feel fortunate enough to 
get to take part in these sorts of things. There you go. So if you're a bit of a football fan, you like going to these charity matches, keep an eye out because you may just see Dean running around on a pitch and you're quite handy from what I hear. Yeah, you know, I'm a bit, even though I'm a skinny lad, you know, I'm a bit of an enforcer at the back, you know. <laughs> never, <laughs> never, never shied away from a tackle. But um, yeah, it's getting harder and harder. Chasing these Love Island boys around the pitch is, you know, it's, it's not good for an old man. Who is your biggest inspiration in life? Ooh. Do you know what? That's a really tough one, Bryn. Because, you know, when it comes to the world of food, I think the answer for me there is it's quite simple. You know, I was a, a huge, and still am, a huge Jamie Oliver fan. And I think Jamie opened up the door for people like myself to actually make the transition into cooking. If it wasn't for him, I really don't think food, especially in the UK, would be in the position that it is now. You know, food is a huge, huge scene in the UK. So Jamie will always be my hero when it comes to food. Um, but outside of that, I'm a big Star Wars fan, Bryn. So maybe, well, let's go for someone from my home city. He's not, he's, he's not someone that I think will, will tick the box for everyone, but I love a bit of Darth Vader. So. Dave Price was from the city of Bristol. So, you know, being a Star Wars fan, let's, 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 let's go with Dave. I'll tell you a funny, funny little story. Dave was a, a bodybuilder, bouncer. You know, we worked behind the bars and many places in Bristol. And um, I was fortunate enough to meet him a few years ago. And uh, he was an actor as well, obviously. He'd been in Clockwork Orange and, and a few other sort of films. But when he played the role of Darth Vader, he actually voiced it in his broad Bristolian accent. And it was only when they went to the advanced screening that he realized he'd been overdubbed by the famous American actor, James Earl Jones. Because can you imagine if uh, that iconic scene in Empire Strikes Back, Luke, I'm your father. Can you just imagine? I think I've heard Bill Bailey talk about a similar thing, <laughs> saying, you know, and imagine him like, all right, there, Luke. <laughs> yeah. But you know, what, I, you know what, I, I don't know, part of me wants to hear it that way. I'd love them to actually get him to, to do uh, the voice again and just put it back to as it was and just see what it'd be like without James Earl Jones in there and have, yeah. have a broad Bristolian accent as Darth Vader. It would be, I think, remarkable. I think. It, would be, it would be pretty cool. But yeah, you know, for me, I'm a proud Bristolian. So anyone that comes out of the Bristol area that has done something iconic like that. You know, it's the biggest baddie in movie history. You know, I think that's pretty cool. It's probably not the answer you were expecting, Bryn. But, you know, I think for me, as a proud Bristolian, that ranks up there as, a, as, as quite a good achievement. I think for me, it, that's as left field as if you said Marco <laughs> Van Basten or something like that, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Dean, it's been an absolute pleasure to catch up with you and I really hope we keep seeing you inspiring us. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. And with books as well. And um, what is next for you apart from the book in September? Um, at the moment, Bryn, I'm keeping myself very, very busy. Uh, as I mentioned before, my, my huge passion is writing recipes and creating content, visual imagery, recipes, food, you know, so... Um, if any of you guys want to check out what I'm doing, then follow me across all my social media platforms. So across Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Dean Edwards there. What a wonderful and inspirational chat. <laughs> Done it again. 
If you want to find out more about Dean, you can find him on Instagram, Twitter and TikTok. Just search Dean Edwards Chef. If you want to find him on any other place, well, go to Google or any other well-known search engine and put his name in. You'll find out loads, including details of his wonderful new cookbook, Cook Slow, Light and Healthy, out September the 6th, 2020. Of course, if you're listening to this after September the 6th, 2020, well, the book is already out. So why not take a little look? You might just like it. You never know. I've been Bryn Lucas. You've been listening to It's All About Me. If you enjoyed it, listen to other episodes, subscribe and tell your friends. If you didn't like it, well, keep it to yourself. (laughs) 